Welcome to 2024. With the 2024 election on the horizon, the wars in Gaza and Ukraine, and numerous other foreign policy and domestic news stories, it's never been more important to stay informed. The DSR Network has you covered, with experts across all of these stories, to bring you the analysis and commentary of the stories that matter. Later this month, the DSR Network will introduce the TNR Daily, featuring Greg Sargent, formerly of the Washington Post, and a close friend of the show. Don't miss a moment of our coverage. Become a member of the DSR Network today. Members receive exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to attend DSR live events, a members-only Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and more. For the month of January, receive 50% off your first year of membership. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSR2024 at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSR2024. Thank you for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast, The Mothership, the beginning of it all, Deep State Radio, Um, our uh, midweek look at what's going on in the world and what you should be concerned about it. I am your host, David Rothkopf. I am joined, um, as almost always, by the one and only, but nonetheless peripatetic, Corey Shockey. How are you doing, Corey? (laughs) I am exceedingly well. Greetings from Lisbon. Greetings in Lisbon. And Rosa, can you top that? Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University. No, I can't top that. I'm sitting in my office at Georgetown Law, um, and it it ain't Lisbon. Um, Well, um, you know, it's glad somebody's got their feet in the ground here. And we are also joined by our friend, Ambassador Doug Lute. He's a retired lieutenant general in the U.S. Army, former U.S. ambassador to NATO, uh, has played big roles at the National Security Council, um, and is generally a good guy. How are you, Doug? I'm well, David. Good to be back with you. I'm, I'm glad glad to have you here uh, to provide us with those important Indiana bread perspectives that you always... Right. Doug, on a scale of 1 to 10, how happy are you that you are not huh. Lloyd Austin or or Ukrainian President Zelensky? That would be a 12. <laughs> <laughs> Which job would you rather have less? <laughs> oh, God, I don't know. Give me some time to think about that. It's yeah, a toss-up. Well, it's a as a big relief to all of you in our audience. We will not be discussing Lloyd Austin or his prostate today, uh, but we will be discussing for a bit President Zelensky. Uh, I find. Can we discuss vegan porn stars? Pardon me. Can we discuss vegan porn stars? Have you followed the case of that? Uh, what? Yeah, too much time on your yes. hands. No, I don't. It was on the front page of the New York Times. I swear this is like a this is actual real news. This is not fake news. I mean, amidst the resignations of of Claudine Gay at Harvard and my my poor friend Liz McGill at Penn, um, um, a a less noticed but 
clearly extremely important case involving the chancellor of the University of Wisconsin in La Crosse resigned. And you might be thinking, well, what is a vegan porn star? Indeed, that is what I was thinking. Yes. Well, it turned out this this fellow um, who only wanted love was doing um, cooking shows with vegan cooking shows, which he recorded with porn stars and then following the conclusion of the cooking other kinds of activities were taking place and they were then uploading this to the internet and the uh board of regents in wisconsin apparently was not super thrilled david has lost control uh, I knew it, it was inevitable but here we, we need to talk about this i think we need to discuss you know, this. Doug, first of all that assumes that that's not what i wanted to talk about <laughs> exactly. Um, and secondly, um, I, uh, I I did see that story, Rosa, and I'm really so glad you brought it up. But it doesn't seem You're to welcome. me to have much to, to do with what we're talking about here. Well, it does. It has to do with the really important question of who would you least rather be right now? Mr. Vegan Porn Star, <laughs> Claudine Gay, um, um, Lloyd Austin, or Zelensky. Okay. Hey, I just thought I'd add more No, options. that's a great way to frame the question. And let's turn to you, Doug, and please, your answer needs to be Zelensky. Explain why. No. That's kind of controlling. Actually, I think Zelensky's got good chances of reversing the narrative, which has emerged over the last three to six months, that this war is unwinnable uh, for him. And I, I don't think we should rush to that judgment. Uh, I think we have not given him sufficient resources to uh, prove the case. And I'm hopeful that we can reverse the course on that. Uh, but there's a lot hanging in the balance. And we'll have to see. Of course, the first fight, the first tactical fight in that on that campaign has to be inside the U.S. House of Representatives with regard to uh, the, uh, the proposal to extend U.S. funding. That's critical. With U.S. funding, um, comes EU funding, and comes a sort of a, a renewed spirit that Zelensky can still win this fight. Well, let me ask you a follow-up question, Doug, before we go to Corey and Rosa's reactions and questions. Uh, and that is, do you see any encouraging signs from the U.S. House of Representatives? All the stories I've seen recently are that the folks in charge of the House are in less control um, than they were before because of, you know, pending band-aids to put over the budget and other kinds of things which have alienated the far right from the middle right. Um, and 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 we don't see, I mean, no, it's January 10th. We were told this vote would happen after the new year. I don't see it on the horizon. Do you see action, Doug? No, I don't see anything on the short-term horizon. Um, but I am confident that Conversations are underway with regard, in particular, to the swing issue, right? Which is which are measures regarding the southern border, uh, and have been through the Christmas, New Year's holidays. So, so that's at least promising. It, it at least appears that they're talking to one another. But of course, this faces challenges on both ends of the political spectrum, both from the far right and from the left. So, um, so I suppose the best we can do today, at least the best I can do today, is is to uh, say, let's see. We'll see. Well, that's uh, that's afraid where all of us are. Um, Corey, any reaction to this or perhaps even a question for Doug? 
so I absolutely agree with Doug's judgment about President Zelensky's ability to change the narrative. I also think it's really important not to accept the framing of, you know, it's okay if this becomes a frozen conflict. Uh, the, dis- the policy conversations about, well, you know, math class is getting hard. Maybe it's time to press the Ukrainians to just accept the current, the status quo. Um, that, that is infuriating. It reminds me of that fabulous onion headline, America's university professors weary of burden of war. Um, because, uh, you know, you it's taking a real toll on me, Corey. <laughs> I'm sorry, Rosa. <laughs> um, the, the notion that, that, you know, we can't sustain the marginal assistance we have been providing and that the Russians will somehow accept the current status quo as opposed to rearm and continue the campaign because there's no evidence their objectives have narrowed. Um, I, I just think uh, is bad, bad strategy and bad policy. I also agree. So I'm a little bit more worried um, about the congressional angle of it because I mean, maybe if the Speaker of the House is able to get the budget deal passed, the one that his predecessor once removed, if we, if we include the acting uh, Speaker of the House, uh, McCarthy got defenestrated over making this deal with the president. And some Republicans on Capitol Hill say that, you know, it was a bad faith move on McCarthy's part it wasn't the deal itself that they didn't support. But there's a lot of um, stomping and hissing from the Freedom Caucus and others. I do think the budget will pass. I do think the Speaker of the House will survive, but it may put him in a weaker position to negotiate a deal on aid to Israel, Ukraine, and border stuff. And I was deeply discouraged to hear Speaker Johnson say that, um, you know, he didn't want to give the president a win on the border because my fellow Republicans, we cannot have it both ways. You either think the border's a pressing issue that that's worth going to all this effort in order to get better policy for, which involves compromise with the President of the United States and Democrats in the House and Senate, or you are fundamentally unserious about the issue. I'm sorry for going on so long, David. No, no, you shouldn't apologize. And frankly, I think, you know, that's an important point and something that Doug touched upon, which is um, the Republicans said, yeah, you can't do this unless we have a border deal. And the White House quietly behind its uh, breath or under its breath, behind its hand, you know, what the White House said was, okay, take that issue off the table. We'll do a border deal with you. Um, and uh, they were very happy to be forced into a border deal uh, because they felt that it would uh, um, you know, help them with that issue going forward in the election. And all of a sudden, as soon as the Republicans realized what they've done, now you have the Speaker of the House saying, 
maybe, maybe not. You know, maybe we're not going to continue with this. Well, let me get a comment from Rosa, and then we'll turn back to Doug. Ah, uh, boy. So I'm of I'm of two minds on all of this. Um, I partly partly agree with with both Doug and Corey that Z- that Zelensky can shift the narrative that that none of us, nobody should be being defeatist, that we should all be saying, come on, people, this is ridiculous. The United States can afford the support. We can get there. There can be a deal. We can push the Europeans to do it. Let's, that's got to be what we're holding out for. We're holding out for, for winning. We're not, we're not holding out for, you know, some kind of horrible, messy, depressing, you know, deal or frozen conflict that just drags on forever and ever. And I, I, I completely get that. And part of me, part of a big part of my heart is there. But I also fear a little bit, I'm, I'm actually thinking of some conversations many, many years ago with Les Gelb, with the late Les Gelb. Um, who, what a good man he was. was. Who was a good man. And Les would convene these groups of, you know, young, back then I was young, uh, you know, folks in the national security foreign policy world. And he would push us really hard in this, at the time of these conversations, early, early-ish in the Iraq war, to say things like, okay, so what would be, if a Democratic candidate wins the presidency, what would be the plan for Iraq? And everybody starts saying stuff like, well, you know, we're going to win the war and we're going to turn Iraq into a democracy and that would be great. And, and Les was like, okay, right. So what are you going to do? How are you going to do that? Where are you going to get the money from? Um, what if you can't get the money? What if this, what if that? And everybody would start kind of spluttering and saying, well, that's so defeatist, you know, and, and he would, do something that was extremely unpleasant to to go through. It was very unpleasant to be at the end, the other end of this Les Gelb interrogation. He would say, you need to have an answer to the question of, okay, so you're opening that door and then what door do you go through next? And what if this and what if that? And don't give me this, but we're going to have our cake and eat it too, because that is our policy. Our policy is going to be to have our cake and eat it too. And we refuse to, you know, and we're going to declare it defeatist to do anything other than say that we're going to have our take, cake and eat it too. Um, and I, I, that for me had a, a fairly profound impact on how I think about these issues because I do think that we, we all pretend that we're realists, but we're, we're really not. Um, I don't mean present company. I mean uh, most of us in general when it comes to these issues but that we, you know, that we want to have everything. We say, well, we, we want more money for Ukraine and we want victory and, and so forth. And, and so we're not going to have that conversation about possible negotiated settlements and what they might look like, because that would be defeatist. But that then we end up in the situation, we're now in a very familiar situation, which is that political, domestic political will always fades much sooner than we think it will. And this is the, you know, Einsteinian definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Like we know, we know that Congress has, you know, an attention span of a gnat. Uh, we know the American people haven't the attention span of gnats. Um, you know, we, we know all of these things. And yet every single time we go into, we go into things acting as if this time it's going to be different. And even when the political cards are all stacked against us, we keep insisting that somehow we're going to get through. And I do worry about the, uh, what are, I, so I guess the question I would pose, and this is a question for all of you, for all of us, the question I would pose would be, um, what is the bad thing that happens if we're wrong in each direction, right? Um, if we're wrong about the possibility of the best case outcomes here, um, um, we're able to get some through so some combination of U.S. funding, European funding, and so on, 
the Ukrainians what they need um, and so on. If we're wrong about that, all of that, what happens? What's the what's the bad thing that happens? If we're wrong that pushing for some kind of negotiated settlement could lead to some not horrible, minimally acceptable result, what happens? And, and sort of asking ourselves, what are the likelihood that we're wrong and what are the what are the costs of each of those? And I don't think that we do have those conversations enough. I mean, uh, obviously, we we just saw um, you know some powerful arguments, including from the Italians as well as you know people like Bill Galston, um, in favor of saying, "Hey, we need to we need to be a little bit more serious about talking about mediated negotiated ends to this." Um, and 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 as I said, I'm totally divided, and I'm I'm going on too long now, but because my heart wants to be where Doug and Corey are. My head is a little bit saying, I don't know. Um, well, let me let me, um, let me so try to simplify this a little bit because you've just asked a question that extends infinitely in both directions, um, <laughs> and, and 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 that's not to say we won't get to both directions. But let me sort of take how long is our podcast? How, do, how much we have, time a, do we have? Several hours. It's, this is usually a ten, in, 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 ten hour time. podcast, Excellent. but. Our listeners love the infinite yeah, podcast. No, that's, yeah, that's something <laughs> we're going to introduce soon, but only for members. For people with really long commutes. Yeah, exactly. Like intergalactic commutes. But in any event, <laughs> um, Doug, let, let, let me you know, sort of try to get at some of what Rose is talking about, but go by going in a different direction. You begin by, by saying the narrative is wrong. I, I, my sense is that if you talk the frozen conflict narrative, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If everybody says we can't get beyond this, then we start to all pull back. But the news right now is not in that direction um, for the reasons that you've enumerated and others. Zelensky was in the Baltics yesterday. You know, the Baltics are 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 bending over backwards with recommitment. Uh, the, the, the Estonians, who've been sort of on the forefront of this, have committed 0.25% of their GDP to the support of Ukraine as long as it takes, um, which is kind of remarkable when you consider NATO is supposed to get 2% of, the, of their GDP. Uh, we've made some progress in recent days towards Sweden getting into NATO. There has been some progress on the ground uh, and of course, we shouldn't discount the fact that here is Russia with a giant army, lots of resources, missiles now coming in from North Korea and from other places, and they're still not making great gains. In some places, they're losing. Talk about the optimistic case, the case you would make if you were sitting with somebody in Congress saying, no, we need this money now because we can achieve our goals. Right. I think the key word there is goals. Um, I would argue that over the past, well, actually, since the beginning of this this most recent turn of the conflict, right? So February 2022, we have struggled with the disconnect between ends, ways, and means. So between what we aspire to do, our goals, how we're going about that, and the resources we're willing to marshal in in um, in support of those goals. And we've said um, that our goals are very maximalist. So, um, for example, we follow Zelensky's line. Every square meter of, of, of occupied territory returned to uh, Ukrainian control, so back to the 1991 borders uh, and so forth. We've said uh, as long as it takes and so forth. 
And yet, um, what we've seen is a very incremental bureaucratic approach to providing Ukraine the resources, the, the means to actually do that. So we have ambitious, maximalist goals and sort of minimalist, incremental um, uh, uh, resources. Now, what we see the administration doing is essentially applauding itself for how much we've done. And, and it has been a historically large uh, project to provide Ukraine the sorts of things we've provided. But that doesn't make it enough uh, to achieve the goals, right? Exactly. So, so, so it, I mean, history's uh, useful here, but it's not determinative. Uh, we have economized, we have incrementalized, we have taken sort of step-by-step -step approach, and supposedly, uh, presumably, because of concern about the potential for Rus Russian escalation. But we need to look at look at the evidence here. We now have approaching two years of empirical data of what happens when we provide additional support. Remember the days of the javelin. This is a shoulder-fired anti-tank weapon. And there were those who argued, well, we can't possibly provide that because in the hands of the Ukrainians, javelins will kill Russians and Russia will escalate. Well, we're well past javelins now. We're in the F-16 realm. And there are about two dozen increments between javelins and F-16s. In every single case, the fear of escalation has proven, um, has proven false. And in fact, uh, I believe the last two years of, of, of experience, of evidence, reflect that every time Putin has faced a choice between escalate and evacuate, he's chosen the latter. Uh, this is Kherson. This is Kharkuk. This is the Black Sea Fleet headquarters in Sevastopol. Um, uh, this is even the Ukrainian indigenous drone attack against a strategic bomber base inside Russia where they destroyed two Tu-22 strategic bombers. A week later, that bomber squadron was evacuated further east. So when, when, cho when, when facing a choice between escalate and evacuate, we should now appreciate that the pattern is he will evacuate and we should play to that. Um, so this is no longer the early days or weeks of the conflict uh, where this fear of escalation should dominate. Uh, I think we should pay attention to what's been going on and adjust our approach, aligning resources to goals uh, and give the Ukrainians what they need to actually win. Now, the last bit here, and I'm I'm droning on, um, is I think we should be explicit that that is our goal. <laughs> I'm not even, I mean, at the two-year mark, I'm not confident that that we've been that explicit, that we need to win. And this is an element of the speaker's argument in uh, with regard to funding that on top of uh, the border deal and all that, he wants a clear statement of uh, what our goal is. I think in this case, he's actually got a point. We need to clarify what is it we're all about in Ukraine. Corey, I, I, I sense you agree. Um, uh, Doug is exactly right. Exactly right. The only thing I would add to that is that I think the most important near-term assistance we could give to Ukraine is to relax the policy restriction on them using weapons provided by us and others to strike the sanctuary of Russian territory. Because 
as we learned in Afghanistan, Iraq, and elsewhere, when your enemy has a sanctuary, we are allowing the destruction of Ukraine from Russia as a sanctuary. And as Doug says, Russia has rightly assessed our risk tolerance to be incredibly low. But every time we bump up against the risk of escalation, the Russians blanch at doing it. And so we should have more confidence that we can relax that restraint and let the Ukrainians actually win this war. You know, along those lines, if I, if I can just interrupt here, you know, it's interesting. Every time there's a mass air attack, Russian air attack on Ukraine, the focus is always on the targets of, the, of those attacks, right? So how many people died in Kharkiv? How many casualties in Kiev and so forth? We don't do enough to illuminate, to, to disclose the sources of those attacks. And if you did that, you'd see that many of the Shahad drone attacks, for example, emanate from occupied Ukrainian territory, Crimea, the Crimea Peninsula. A lot of the, most of the long range strikes uh, come from Russian territory itself. And Corey's right. We have granted sanctuary to these launch sites uh, from which attacks are emanating and killing um, Ukrainian civilians. I, that, that's intolerable. That's simply not only in a military sense, but I think in term, in a moral sense, this is intolerable that we've given Russians the sanctuary to, to kill Ukrainians. So, Rosa, just continuing on this vein, I know you're of two minds of this. I, uh, one way to summarize this is that the administration has gotten this rhetorically almost right, although it needs to be clear about our objectives. But in terms of the implementation of policies, uh, we've placed too many bureaucratic constraints on getting the weapons to the Ukrainians and too many bureaucratic constraints on how the Ukrainians should use those weapons. Do you agree with that? Um, yes and no, <laughs> naturally. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, I would distinguish between the phases of this. And I, I think actually Doug said something that, that is you know, hugely important. Um, early in the conflict, I was really worried about escalation, um, you know, and, and Putin was doing nuclear saber rattling and, and it was pretty scary. And I don't think so. I don't think the administration was wrong to say, you know what, that's actually kind of a concern. We don't want this to escalate uh, into a broader war. We don't want this to escalate into a direct conflict that we get sucked into. We don't want this, God forbid, escalate into some kind of nuclear conflict. And so we have to be really careful and drawing some really clear lines about, you know, what we're going to support the Ukrainians in doing and how we're going to support them with what kinds of weapons and so on is actually really important to, to keep the temperature down, to keep the Russians from overreacting, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think that was, that was not wrong. That being said, um, you know, as, as Doug noted, um, we're, we have some more information now than we had. Um, and we have, we have two crucial pieces of information that we didn't have uh, at the beginning of this conflict. One of those pieces of information is that China has made it very clear publicly uh, that they are not okay with any kind of nuclear escalation. And I think Putin may not want to care about that, but he has to care about that. Um, you know, even Putin we hope, we, we hope and trust, is not quite so reckless or, or, or obsessive uh, that he would do something that will leave him completely isolated. Um, and the message China does seem to be sending is that is a red line. 
Um, you know, that is absolutely red line for us. And that gives me some uh, greater assurance. And the other thing is, and this is, was Doug's point, was that we have now have some data about Putin's responses that he goes up to the brink in terms of escalatory rhetoric and escalatory moves, and then he backs down, um, um, which was not obvious that he was going to do. And does that guarantee that he will continue to back down every single time? No. You know, does it still remain a possibility that sometimes keep me up at night, keeps me up at night that he, he, sometimes he won't back down. Yeah. But I do think that we have more reason now to be confident that increased aggression from the Ukrainians, including in Russian occupied territory, including inside Russia, aimed at denying them some of those safe havens from which they are launching these, these devastating strikes um, most, many, if not most of which violate the laws of war uh, in terms of indiscriminate attacks on, on targets that end up, you know, predictably kill a disproportionate number of civilians and so on. I, you know, I think that, I think that we now have greater reason to think that that could be done and it should be done without incurring such a high risk of out of control esca- esca- escalations from the Russians. So, so I think, you know, going back to your question, was it right or wrong for the Biden administration to take that somewhat bureaucratized, go slow, be cautious approach? Uh, I think at the beginning it was right. Um, but I think facts have, on the ground have now changed. And these two additional pieces of information um, make that calculus different now than it was. And, and this does seem to be a moment where things are in danger of getting stuck. Um, and if there ever was a moment to kind of say, uh, boy, you know, we need to take out those Russian capabilities. This seems to be that moment. Yeah. Well, look, I well argued, Russia. Pardon me. Well, well argued, Rosa. Well argued, Rosa. But did you just call her Russia? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> How could you? That, I'm, I'm, I mean, I can't even believe that slip. But uh, I'll follow up on that after we take our usual break here and say to everybody who's not a member, sorry, this is as far as this goes, and you should become a member because I'm going to ask really interesting questions now. Uh, and that happens at- We can't tolerate the kind of red yeah, Exactly. exactly. And that happens in every <laughs> single podcast that we do, and there are more and more that we do, so there's more and more bonus content. So go to the DSR Network dot com click on membership become a member and right now the membership's only five dollars a month it's gonna go up i promise and it's gonna go up next month so this is the moment and you'll get all this bonus content we'll be grateful because it'll keep us doing what we do uh and you'll be grateful because you'll get smarter um but for now if you're not a member bye bye and if you are a member stand by 